This is the Education Gadfly Show. The students have also invaded Harvard's campus, and so yeah. we professors having yeah. to adjust to that. What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. You're at the Education Gadfly Show and online at FordhamInstitute.org. And now, please welcome my special guest for this week, Marty West. Marty, welcome back to the show. Hey, it's great to be here. Marty, for those of you that don't know, is the editor-in-chief of Education Next. Uh, he is also a, a what kind of professor? I always get it confused, Marty, which is you know more prestigious, the associate or the assistant professor? Associate is higher than assistant, but I've climbed the ranks all the way to just professor, and, and that's what oh, you're going for. Marty, impressive. A full professor at Harvard Graduate School of Education. Marty, I, I believe this is not the first time you've been on the show, right? Or am I getting that wrong? I think it, it, if I've been on before, it's been quite a few years, but you've been doing this for a while. You guys were trailblazers in the education policy podcast space. And so we uh, were, it, it, it's been something like a decade and a half. All right. Well then, then welcome to the show and happy new school year to you. Uh, you know, where I live uh, in Montgomery County, Maryland, our boys started school this week uh, up there in the Boston suburbs. Same deal for you all. Yep. I dropped off our fourth grader at his elementary school today for day one. Our sixth grader was uh, over at the middle school. So we are back in action and the students have also invaded Harvard's campus. And so yeah. we professors are having yeah. to adjust to that. We are all back in the back in the flow. All right. Well, hey, a lot to talk about as the new school year begins. Um, and what we're going to talk about today is actually what's on the minds of the public and parents in the latest Education X poll. So let's do that in our Ed Reform update. All right, Marty. So the 2019 Education Next poll results are available online now, and they'll be coming out in print in the winter edition. Uh, and what is this? This is now for you, Ben, over a decade of doing the poll at Education Next as well. Is that right? That's right. This is the 13th annual Education Next survey of public opinion. It was administered this May 2019 to about 3,050 uh, American adults. Uh, and you're able to look at those results by what? The general public, but also parents and some subgroups? Yeah, one of the things we do when we conduct the poll is we draw a nationally representative sample of adults, but then we also oversample some specific groups that wouldn't show up in sufficient numbers if we were not to single them out and recruit additional representatives. So uh, this year we oversampled teachers, something we've been doing for more than a decade now. We're really the first poll to, to go in that direction, uh, as well as African-Americans and Hispanics. Okay. All right. Uh, now, there's always interest in looking at the year-by-year -year results. So, for example, this year we see uh, some increased support, I believe, on the private school choice side. You see this uh, separation within the charter school movement on the Democratic side between uh, white liberals and African-Americans and Latinos. Tell me if I'm getting any of this wrong. But I'm always curious about sort of the longer, the, the, the bigger picture over the longer term. So let's start on the school choice side. And so when you look over this over several years to five to 10 years, I mean, what, what are the general trends? Do these numbers just sort of bounce up and down or, you know, has support for charter schools gone up or down? Has support for private school choice gone up or down? What, what can we say? over the longer term. So one of the things we do in the essay that accompanies the release of the poll findings this year is look at how support for school choice in particular, and we ask about 
two different types of voucher programs, vouchers for low-income students and then universal vouchers for all students, as well as tax credit-funded scholarships, the approach to private school choice that the Trump administration is pushing. And we also ask about charters. So four different types of choice programs. And in the essay, we look at what results have been since 2016. So essentially since the Trump administration took office. And, you know, over that period, you see, broadly speaking, uh, an increase in support for at least all three of the private school choice policies that we talk about. So um, targeted voucher programs, we see support rising from 37% in 2016 to 49% in 2019. This tax credit approach up to 58% from 53% in 2016, a similar increase in the universal voucher proposal. So, you know, sort of all that is pushing in an upward direction over this uh, this three-year period. Now, I will say 2016 had marked a little bit of a, a low point where we had seen some declining enthusiasm over the previous several years for private school choice proposals. Uh, but that seems to have turned around and uh, it was a bit surprising to us, given some of the rhetoric around the issue of school choice uh, since Trump has taken office. Well, right. I mean, listeners know I, I am not the biggest Trump fan, and I have been concerned, as have many education reformers, uh, that having him and Secretary DeVos out front on some of these issues, given that they are so unpopular with so much of the country, that that might hurt the cause. But here you go, that on private school choice, at least it appears that something is helping the cause instead. I mean, is, is it partisanship? Is it that it is more Republicans who are getting behind this? Uh, or is is that is there something else that seems to be happening? Yeah, there's a, there's a bit of that. And I, I will say we did see some hints of that perhaps Trump branding effect between 2016 and 2017, where we uh, saw in particular a, a large drop in support for charter schools by about 12 percentage points, I, I believe, that year. Um, but that has since turned around. Um, I do think a big part of what's going on is that Republicans who, you know, in the electorate have always been a little bit lukewarm about private school choice programs, in part because I think they're more satisfied with their you know, options in the public system. They're more likely to live in rural areas and maybe not see school choice policies as relevant to their own situations. You have seen much larger increases among Republicans. And so uh, I do think that could be part of just, uh, you know, the Republican elites talking about it, putting it up front and Republicans saying, all right, that's what I'm supposed to be for. What's surprising is that you haven't seen that be accompanied by a substantial or really any decline in support among Democrats. And there, I think that reflects the enduring popularity of these ideas among uh, Americans of color, black and Hispanic Democrats uh, who make up a substantial share of the Democratic electorate and uh, continue to support these ideas at very high levels. Yeah. So, and, and you see this in charter schools too, right? Is that you've got this now coalition of, basically white Republicans and Democrats of color that support charters. Is that basically fair to say? I think that's uh, very much fair to say. And that real divide along racial and ethnic lines within the Democratic Party on the topic of charter schools is something that's really only emerged in the past couple of years. So I think, you know, during that period, uh, you have uh, white progressives being much more 
vocal in their opposition to the charter school movement. Uh, and that seems to be showing up in the data that we get uh, from Democrats in our sample. All right, let's shift a little bit now to testing and accountability. Uh, it wasn't so long ago that people were saying that, you know, testing is is doomed to the dustbin of history because it's got no constituency. Nobody likes it. You know, whereas at least with school choice, you've got, uh, you know, people in charter schools with kids in charter schools that will defend them. Uh, you know, since then, we've seen support for charters come down somewhat, as we've discussed. Uh, and now what about on the testing front? It kind of seems like we're not talking about testing as much as we used to. And maybe that's helping it a little bit. Yeah. So, you know, we've always found uh, substantial support from the public for the basic infrastructure of test-based accountability. So we've always seen strong support of the federal requirement that students be tested in math and reading in third through eighth grade and once in high school. Uh, that was at 74% support this year. That's very similar to what we've seen in the past. Um, and, you know, we didn't ask about opt-out requirements, but those have never seemed to uh, opt out options for parents. Those have never seemed to uh, draw much support in our data, though we didn't ask about them this year. Um, I think what you might be most interested in is that we've seen something of a rebound in support for the Common Core, which you know was in a complete free fall for the yep. several years leading up to 2017, falling from, I believe, you know, higher than 65% to lower than 45% for the public as a whole. That's back up to 50%. Uh, you know, my interpretation is that the Every Student Succeeds Act, which really sort of made it clear that this was a decision for states to make, made it clear that there was no federal involvement, sort of diffused some of the debate around the Common Core and testing more generally. And so you're seeing that reflected in, in the data on public opinion. Yeah, which is not to say that the people you're polling know anything about ESSA or its you know provisions and, and the like, but just that we are not hearing much talk about this at all. You don't have politicians talking about common core much anymore you certainly don't have the concerted effort uh, to attack common core and and the use of a lot of money out there on the tea party right that was happening at one party part to attack the common core with negative advertising and so yeah it, it has it has come back up as you perhaps you might expect maybe the lesson here is if, if you've got an education reform you really like just try to keep anybody from talking about it I think that's exactly right. And I 100% agree that our respondents do not know the details of the Every Student Succeeds Act. Yeah. And then and well, last point, Marty, on teachers, is there anything that you've seen uh, that you thought was particularly interesting on the teacher front or anything that surprised you? Well, going back to the uh, issue of long-term trends, you know, we saw continued increases this year in support for increasing teacher pay. We asked yeah. about this a couple different ways. The main difference being whether or not we provide respondents with information on how much teachers in their state already earn. Uh, when we ask about it in that way, with that information provided, we found 56% of the public now say teacher salaries should increase. That's up seven percentage points over last year, but that was on top of a 13 percentage point increase the year before. So that's a 20 percentage point jump over the past two years. And if yep. you look at it, at it over a longer perspective, what you see is that uh, support for increasing teacher pay is now as high as it has been since 2008, when we conducted our survey at the peak of the housing bubble, just on the brink of the 
financial crisis. And, you know, we're back to those levels. Uh, Mm -hmm. Support for increasing teacher pay fell quite dramatically over the course of the Great Recession, but now appears to have recovered entirely. I hope that's uh, not a harbinger of news on the economic front for us to worry about today. <laughs> right. Yeah. Why not? Everybody's talking about the inverted yield curve. Nobody's <laughs> talking about the next poll. Exactly. Come on. Exactly. Give me a break. I had that thought. Uh, yeah. Well, look, you know, I think certainly people are probably feeling better about spending money on higher teacher salaries. Although then again, I think it was the Kappen survey this year that asked if, if people would be willing to pay higher taxes in order to boost those salaries. And then people were not as excited. You know, they, the old idea that we, we would like to, you know, somebody else to pay for those higher teacher salaries. That's a very important qualification. When we've asked about tax increases, either to support more school spending or spending on teacher salaries specifically, we always find much lower levels of support. We see one hint along those lines in our data this year, which is that when we ask about support for increasing school spending, we asked separately about spending from the federal government, from the state government, and from the local government. We found much higher levels of support for increasing federal school spending. That was especially the case when we told people that the federal government only paid about 8% of the bill overall. Uh, So I think you're definitely right. People are reluctant to raise their local taxes, uh, but they're much more open to the possibility of increases in federal spending. So I think it's not surprising that you're seeing the Democratic candidates out on the campaign trail talking about that concept. I would just encourage them that if they want it to go over well, they should start by saying just how little as a share of the overall pie mm-hmm. the federal government currently contributes. Interesting. Yeah. And just put, go ahead and just put it on the, on the federal credit card, right? That's it's right. Just, uh, it, look, it's, it's hard to make an argument right now as a fiscal conservative that we should not be investing in say, higher teacher salaries at a time when we're running a trillion dollar deficit. Uh, it is, you know, I mean, on the other hand, you say, well, God, you know, we're already running a trillion dollar deficit. How can we afford any more of this spending? But, uh, you know, we're being so profligate on other things. It's hard not to uh, to, to say we should be stingy on education. <laughs> the, the big question, you know, that I'd love to have people wrestle with in some of these polls is to try to understand, hey, school spending has continued to go up, uh, at least over the longer terms, uh, you know, big time. And yet the teacher salaries have not gone up. So the money's going somewhere else. And what is it? You know, if if they're serious about teacher pay, for example, are they willing to take higher class sizes in exchange uh, and and force some pokes? Maybe for next year. Well, it's been a while since we've asked any questions along those lines. But, you know, uh, I believe it was back in 2009 or 2010, we did ask people whether they... uh, thought that spending should go into uh, reducing class size or increasing teacher pay. And I hate to tell you, reducing class size is very, very popular. Um, But we also found that if you help people understand that trade-off, so you explain specifically how much of a teacher pay increase could be accomplished uh, by increasing class size by a particular amount, that they begin to favor the salary increase more. So I do think there's room for education of the public on that issue in the context of sort of local discussions of education budgets. But the uh, branding of smaller classes is uh, is very powerful. 
All right, man. There's so much more we could talk about. There's a ton to dig into. And so listeners, go check it out on the Ednext site. Uh, this year for the first time, for example, there's also uh, some sampling of students on some very interesting questions. So, so much great stuff to check out uh, at educationnext.org. Uh, Marty, thanks for coming on the show. I hope you'll do it again. I would be happy to. Thank you very much for having me. All right. Again, Marty West, the editor-in-chief of Education Next and a full professor at Harvard's Graduate School of Education. See you next time, Marty. Thanks, Mike. Now it's time for everyone's favorite, Amber's Research Minute. Amber, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Mike. Just had a nice chat with Marty West. Love uh, Marty all, West. Yeah, we do, we do love Marty West we up do. here, don't we? we do. He says he had never been on the podcast before, what? which I could not believe. No way. We had to have him on here. Well, before. but we certainly you have covered some of his papers, many of and his studies. papers, and he's a Fordham friend. He just kind of served as an external evaluator on a study for us, yeah, which was super because he's so smart. We do appreciate that. All right. So speaking of studies, what you got for us this week? I've got a coolest study. You're gonna love it. You're gonna love it. You're gonna love it. Uh, I don't know how I missed it either. Tom Kane, David Blazar, and others looked at the impacts of substituting videotape lessons instead of in-personal principal observations okay. for purposes of teacher evals. Did you see this? Uh, no, I don't no, think No, so. I didn't either. Anyway, you talk about videoing lessons and all this, yeah. right? Anyway, uh, so we know that in-person observations by principals can be quite costly in terms of time. Supervisors apparently report spending about 10 to 30 hours for each teacher in writing up the comments and the scores and discussing with the teacher. So it's kind of a big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, so researchers set out to see if videos could do the job just as well. They conducted a randomized field trial in four sites in Delaware, Georgia, Colorado, and California. 433 teachers and 134 administrators. And, and this was recently. This recently, was not way back in the day just saw of, it. of it, the Gates. No, uh, it was an AFT like two months ago. Okay. Yeah. Schools were randomly assigned to the treatment group, which had traditional in-person observations, two or three typically, or the video observations, which allowed teachers to control the camera, so to speak. They chose three videos to submit for evaluation. Although they recorded to a month, but they had to submit three to be formally evaluated. Interesting. Um, observers would then timestamp the video with comments and discuss with the teacher afterwards using the rubric that use, was mm-hmm. used for all the evaluations. 52 schools randomly assigned to treatment, 55 randomly assigned to control. They also collected a variety of achievement and survey data from both teachers and students. Mm-hmm. Findings relative to the control group. There was no difference in terms of the amount of time devoted to teacher observations reported by the administrators. Both groups reported spending about 41 minutes per week for a randomly selected teacher on various aspects of the observation process. However, and this was interesting, although it did not save time in the aggregate, administrators in the treatment group shifted their observation work to times of the day or week when classes were not held. Mm -hmm. So when they looked at the timestamp, they could see that administrators were going in after school, before school, during lunch, mm-hmm. evenings, weekends, holidays. Mm-hmm. Um, so about two-thirds of the video commentary occurred during non-instructional hours. Uh, in terms of teacher surveys, treatment teachers perceived the observation process to be less adversarial and far more fair and supportive. They were also more likely to identify a specific change in their practice and to be more critical of their teaching. Principals were also more likely to report that teachers were rarely defensive during the post-observation meeting in the treatment group. Mm -hmm. However, treatment principals were also 20 percentage points less likely to report that teachers had a better understanding of student learning and classroom challenges in their school as a result of the classroom observation process. So it's sort of like they had seemed to have reservations about ditching this in-person component where their physical presence, mm-hmm. you know, was in the room. In terms of retention, the video intervention had significant impacts 
all around. Uh, whether the teachers remain in their grade, their school, their district, all positive uh, mm-hmm. on the treatment side. But when it came to students' responses, there was no difference between the groups in terms of how students viewed their classroom experiences when they asked mm-hmm. about engagement and management and so on. No difference. And the big one... Uh, the video evals had no impact on student achievement. So there was a mixed bag here. The evaluators mm-hmm. kind of conclude at the end, maybe having teachers select the videos might have been the problem because they could conceal their weaknesses. Yeah. Uh, maybe the process just was less informative. We don't really know. Maybe the intervention was too weak. Um, and then they say, uh, you know how that whole stuff by Matt Kraft about coaching, all the mm-hmm. positive stuff we have on coaching is, well, maybe we, if we made it more like coaching, where you not only identify something that you want them to work on, you actually make them resubmit a video again that says, mm-hmm. hey, here, I've mastered it. Now see me do this thing that you recommended. Mm-hmm. So all that seemed to make sense Interesting. to me. Anything about were, were the evaluations uh, more positive or more negative in one of those conditions? Uh, didn't see that. Nope. That at least if they had it, they didn't oh. put it in the report. Yeah, because you would think that they would maybe be more positive because teachers right. are showing their best work. Right. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you had the perceptions of it being more positive, yeah. but they didn't actually report on the scores. Yeah. I also wonder on the videos, can they see what the kids are doing? Yeah. You know, I don't know. They said that the teacher controls the camera. So I don't know if that means she can, because, you know, I know I'm with you on the privacy laws, right? Like, well, would you be privacy, able to? But, but I also would think that. Mm-hmm. Uh, that when people go in and they do the te- in-person teacher evaluations, I mean, aren't you supposed to be paying a lot of attention to what, what the, the kids, kids are doing? Are doing yeah. Right? Are they That's engaged? Right. Are they working yeah. on task? Right. right. Yeah. I would, I, I would think, right. You know, that I mean, it's not just kids. like the teacher's giving just, a show. Right. By herself in right. front of, it couldn't be no one there. Yeah. I mean, unless she's being the sage on the stage. <laughs> right. Which by the way, I think is fine some of the time. Yeah. Yeah. You would think they'd be able to put the kids in there. Right. I mean, I, yeah. I think in the Met yeah. study, they had these cameras that were able to, show you know that that had kind of a wide view or right. that they could capture the whole classroom mm-hmm. right i don't know what well, did say in here they were capturing the um the, the audio yeah and so it may be that they just captured the audio of the kids and not their faces mm-hmm. i don't know but it did say they work with a company to splice both the visual and the audio together interesting so yeah you know uh, i dug into this a few years ago for this uh, post i did on uh, machine learning and AI and, and that mm-hmm. there are now researchers working on being able to take tapes like this and basically have an algorithm analyze right. Uh, right. to see, you know, is the teacher asking good questions? Are the kids engaged? So it's uh, not even a person really no, looking at about this. Is the, the, yeah, <laughs> wow, a robot. Okay. All right. uh, so, Robots all around. All yeah. right. Got but it. You could imagine that, yeah. that, you know, you, you wouldn't want to replace the principal, but maybe right. that could capture some data too. That would be legit. Like I mean, look, mm-hmm. look, all this depends. You're right. You said it well, uh, Amber. Are we trying to, is this a professional development experience? Right. Is this a coaching experience? Uh, or is this some kind of, uh, you know, evaluation? Mm-hmm. I, you know, I, in my view, look, let, let's, in, in most places, let's forget about the evaluation thing mm-hmm. for veteran teachers. I mean, right. for new teachers before they get tenure, mm-hmm. as part of their tenure process, absolutely. Mm-hmm. But for other teachers, if we can try to reshape it as, hey, this is about feedback and coaching. Right. And then you ask a question like, does the principal know enough to be, right, the, to be the, the right person? Right, to I be mean, doing this. You hope right. they're an instructional leader. That's right. And that they used to be a great teacher. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, but, but maybe they're not, especially in high school. You, yeah. You know, when, once they're just running these huge schools and yes. you know, they don't have the subject matter expertise. No. I mean, my principal back in the day um, didn't really 
yeah. that much when so he then, was coming you know, maybe in. Maybe so. it's the, I mean, but so would it be the department chair? Instead, yeah, or, or? You have a, there's some kind of master teacher, instructional leader. Yeah. yeah, there should be some person with that expertise, or obviously. Even peers. I mean, I would think that it would be cool to have yes. all the third grade teachers, you know, watch each other's lessons. That's right. Yeah. Uh, from time to time. No, that's right. And I wish schools would allow that more to happen, yeah. right? Because then you got to get a substitute or you got to make sure you're playing or you're taking your own planning away to go yeah. observe somebody else, which you really need your planning. So yeah, if there was some way to structure the school day to make this happen, because that's the first thing you hear from teachers like, we would love to observe each other. Like they're yeah. not against it. Um, but yeah, it's just like, okay, help us, help us to make that happen through how you schedule our, our day. So yeah. All right. Good stuff. Practical. Even if yes. in this case we did not get any uh, big findings per se, right. it certainly seems like it does. It doesn't seem to do a whole lot of harm. harm. Yeah, absolutely. And it can lead to some greater efficiency. Yeah, and I felt for these principals who now could, you know, use their time during the day to do other things than yeah. be in classrooms. You know, although yeah. they seem to want to be in the classrooms and thought it wasn't as helpful, right? So, okay, whatever. Yeah, yeah, we, yeah. And now you're giving them work they have to take home. Now. Right. Lovely. All right, Amber. Uh, thank you so much. And that is all the time we've got for this week. And so until next week. I'm Amber Northern. And I'm Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, signing off. The Education Gap Life Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at FordhamInstitute.org.